Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with Your Next Dublin, the new home of the Irish Stock Exchange. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, you'll be hearing from New Zealand-based entrepreneur Andrew Barnes, who's written a book about why we should all be working a four-day week. Now, after weeks of speculation, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar pressed the button this week on a general election to be held on Saturday, February 8th. So will this election centre on the economy or will it focus on the housing crisis or maybe the health service? And will it be Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil who leads the next government? Joining me in studio to figure all of this out are economists Jim Parr and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Gentlemen, you're very welcome. Jim, we might start with you. What do you think the main theme of this election is going to be? Well, the government will obviously want to make it their handling of Brexit and their handling of the economy. And if you look at the economic record, you know, we have record levels of employment and unemployment rate of 4.8%. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty much, uh, well, it's a very, very, I wouldn't call it booming, but it's a very strong economy. It's a good economic backdrop. Um, the government, you know, arguably did a pretty decent job in relation to the Brexit negotiations over the last couple of years. Um, so that's obviously what the government will want to hone in on. But if you are in opposition, there's two areas that stand out. One is obviously the ongoing crisis in the health service. And the second is the um, continued imbalances in the housing market. So the, the housing and health are definitely the two sticks with which the opposition will justifiably be able to beat the government. Um, however, I would have certain sympathy for the government in the sense that, you know, we had seven or eight years of no investment in health or in housing. Um, so the, the notion that you can suddenly... Oh, their watch. Uh, indeed, absolutely. But there, there was no choice, you know, when you think about... Uh, well, since 2008, that has been the situation. OK, some of it was under their watch. Some of it was under the watch of the previous government. Uh, but wh- whoever's fault it is, there was a lack of investment in health and housing. And the notion that you could turn around in a few years, turn the tap back on again suddenly create enough houses to solve the problem, suddenly get our dysfunctional health service functioning again was totally unrealistic. But I would blame the politicians for that because, and I think if I was a politician running for the next doll, be very wary of the promises you make. You should not promise what you cannot deliver. And it was never possible. If you go back even to 2016, it was never possible to deliver on the sort of promises that were made at that stage in relation to health and housing. So, you know, I think whatever government um, we get after the 8th of February, um, I hope they're realistic in terms of what they're promising. Um, It will take some years longer to sort the housing situation. I think actually it is getting better, uh, but it'll take some years to restore balance to that market. Um, Health, I suppose, is a different issue. The temptation is just to continue to throw money at it. But I think unless you significantly reform the structure of the way in which health is delivered, um, we could be here in five years' time having the same discussion about health. But housing and health are not unique to Ireland. You know, you look at most... Oh, yeah, cities. but Irish voters don't care about that. I mean, oh, well, they don't, obviously. No, no, but, um, you know, people who think about the, the real situation... Um, I think should realise that Ireland is not unique. Yeah. Now you say the economy isn't booming. What constitutes a booming economy in your book? Well, I suppose if you look at the growth rates, I mean, GDP last year will have expanded by probably around 6%. But if you strip out the artificial stuff like aircraft leasing, the intellectual property, etc., intellectual property rights, the economy is growing 
at about a rate of about 3% per annum. That's pretty, know, pretty good. It's decent. Oh, yeah, it's decent. Uh, but it's not an economy that's on fire. If you look at the behaviour of the consumer, you know, consumers are still behaving in a relatively cautious manner. Uh, bank lending is still very, very subdued across the economy, not just in mortgages or the personal sector. So, um, and of course, in the last 12 months, we've seen a significant deceleration in the housing market. So, I don't think it's a booming economy. I think it's an economy that's doing quite well. And that's the type of economy I would want to live in. I would not want to go back to the situation in 2007 and six when the economy was on fire on all fronts. So um, I'm hoping the next government promises prudence in terms of the management of the economy. Um, I would like to see over the next five years. And to me, it would be a definition of success if we got annual average growth of two and a half to three percent per annum. Yeah. Um, Cliff, Prudent Pascal is the nickname for Pascal Donoghue, our Minister Indeed, for yeah. Finance. And there's no doubt his last budget was prudent. It was Brexit-proofed and very cautious. And uh, Brexit's going to happen now, but it's going to happen, it seems, in a controlled way. And we're not going to have this uh, big slam, if you like, for the Irish economy. So, you know, when you think about it, we're at full employment, you know, the economy, certainly in Dublin, it's it's rattling along. Uh, and people have more money in their pocket. Wages are on the rise again. Sure. Why wouldn't people vote for Fine Gael? Yeah, I mean, one of the really interesting questions of the campaign is the extent to which the incumbent government and Fine Gael in particular are going to get credit for that. Uh, do people kind of take it for granted uh, to some extent that the economy is now growing strongly? We've had four or five years of really strong growth and and instead focus on the delivery issues, you know, health and housing, the things that Jim has spoken about. Or do they listen to the Fine Gael message, which, I mean, we've seen it with the Taoiseach on the radio last Sunday. We saw it again today as the Fine Gael launched the campaign. Trust us on Brexit. Brexit isn't finished yet, number one. Trust us on the economy. Look what Fianna Fáil did the last time they were in government. That's the message that Fine Gael are going to try and hammer home, ha- hammer and hammer home again. Most of the political experts, most of the opinion polls, the results of the last European and local elections might all suggest that the health and housing thing are are, are damaging Fine Gael. Uh, but when it comes to a general election, you know, history shows us that, you know, people can often take a different approach. This is the election that's going to affect people's pockets, that's going to affect people's living standards. Uh, so so I just don't know. But I, I do think uh, it, it's a big factor in the campaign and people are going to be weighing up the different approaches as as we see the parties unveil their plans over the next few couple of weeks. And I suppose there's a lesson to be learned from the UK election in that Labour promised the sun, moon and stars to people yeah. I think an extra 80 billion uh, in spending free broadband, yeah. everything. They threw it, the kitchen sink at it and they got walloped. Yeah, it's one of the really interesting things about this election. As you say, you know, circumstances maybe drove Pascal Donoghue to have a very cautious budget or, or at least allowed him to press his colleagues into into agreeing a, a very cautious budget. Um, so fin, there's no doubt that Fine Gael are going to try and play up that, uh, pl- play up that uh, as a virtue, you know, prudence, prudence as a virtue, as you said. Uh, but the flip side of this is that all the parties are going to be operating now on fiscal forecasts from the Department of Finance that lo- do leave a fair bit of room uh, to manoeuvre over the next few years, we may see over the you know the next couple of weeks fairly lavish spending plans coming out from Fianna Fáil, perhaps from Fine Gael itself. We'd have to see exactly how they pitch that. 
Uh, and, and certainly from some of the smaller parties, you know, more money on health, more money on housing. We're already seeing bits of it. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how those how the balance is struck, uh, and, and as uh, as Jim said, you know whether parties store up problems for mm. themselves in future by promising things that that they simply can't deliver. Yeah, Jim, it's fair to say that more than a decade on from the crash, people are sick of prudence. They want they want money being spent. They they feel they've had enough austerity. They've had enough of kind of minding the coppers. Yeah, but but, but Kieran, I think the narrative is wrong. I mean, there hasn't been prudence or austerity in the last five years if you look at what has happened government expenditure it has increased very significantly particularly in areas like health so you could only describe the last government as a high spend government you know and indeed in the budget in October which was a prudent budget um all the giveaways were on the expenditure side. So I, I think it's wrong to say that we've had austerity on the spending side over the last three to five years. We've seen strong growth. Uh, the one area, I suppose, where we've seen no relaxation in real terms is on the personal tax burden. But the electorate actually would appear to favour that sort of approach. I mean, you know, I think going out promising significant cuts in taxation will not win an election for anybody at uh, this time out because people... Um, are more concerned about spending on uh, public services like health, education, law and order. That seems to be what the electorate wants at this juncture. And in in relation to the Labour Party in the UK, you know, we had very lavish um, spending proposals being made, um, which would have been possible to deliver given the sort of fiscal parameters in which the UK is now operating. But I think the biggest problem for Labour in the UK was Jeremy Corbyn. You know, he was seen as unelectable uh, by most sensible people. That right. was the problem. Well, we won't rerun the UK no, election. No, but, but let's just talk about, uh, you mentioned how people want money spent on health, education, uh, housing, etc. And that's fair enough. And that's definitely a stick that Fianna Fáil are going to beat Fianna Gael with. And yet, um, it was a Fianna Gael-led minority government that was propped up by Fianna Fáil. Uh, Fianna Fáil didn't at any stage during the past uh, four years pull the plug because there wasn't enough money being spent on health, because there wasn't enough money being spent on housing or enough money being spent on education. So why should they get a, a benefit? What's to say that the electorate won't look at Fianna yeah, Fáil well, in the same way? Arguably, they did prevent the government from pursuing a tax-cutting agenda. Um, if you think back a couple of years ago, um, Leo Varadkar laid out his tax plans and they were basically to lift uh, the levels which you went to the top rate of tax to 50,000 in the mid-30s at the moment. But that and any proposed to cut tax were soundly rejected by Fianna Fáil. So I don't expect Fianna Fáil to come out in this election. I could be proven wrong within 24 hours and promise all sorts of tax cuts. I think their focus will be on the expenditure side. And to be honest, you know, anecdotally, that would appear to be what the electorate wants. Um, some obviously would want tax cuts, but the majority of people want better health. They want safer streets and they want the housing situation sorted. Um, tax cuts will not deliver that. Um, expenditure increases will. I'm not saying that is the correct approach, but I think that's the approach. Now mind you, tax cuts were fun. a key plank of Charlie McCreevy's time as Minister of Finance when he was, oh, uh, they, when they, he was in government many they, years ago. They, they were, of course, but the big mistake McCreevy made back then was he didn't control spending at the same time. So fiscal policy was hopelessly expansionary in an economy that was already growing very strongly where we had interest rates which were way too low for the economy. Yeah, I think so, one of the really interesting things is going to be the extent to which Fine Gael try and play on the tax cut agenda this time around. The Taoiseach did mention it, uh, has mentioned it a couple of times over the last few days. He's mentioned phrases like fairer taxation. 
Um, so what exactly does that mean? Does that yeah. mean increases in some places and cuts in others? Or does he plan to use some of the room for manoeuvre over the next few years to actually cut taxes? And would he revive some of those promises in relation to USC to try and create some clear ground in the voters' mind between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? I'm inclined to agree with you that voters' priority is, is health and housing. Mm-hmm. But I still suspect that Fine Gael will try and play to their, to, to their base uh, whether, whether that strategy works or not. You see, well, yeah, well, one of the things that will be thrown at Fine Gael is, you know, typical right-wing party, right-wing government. Fine Gael has done nothing in government really since 2011 that would suggest it's a right-wing party. It has increased spending in all the social areas. It has done very little in terms of reducing taxation. So economically, I could not describe the Fine Gael party as a, an extreme right-wing party. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure people would say extreme, right? But uh, leaning right. And a lot of the... They introduced a lot of tax measures now which have benefited uh, big investment companies from the United States and so forth. Property-related measures. Ah, uh, yeah, but that, that... They've rolled back that, on some that, of them. Yeah, but, but that, that was to try and re-stimulate a property market that was dead. That well, sure, was, and it, that gets, was not it gets the, no commentary that, that at the time. That, but that was but not, then when the economy is back in growth and these companies are making vast yeah, profits yeah, yeah. Uh, out of the investments, the punt mm. they took back then, that's when it comes back to bite you. Oh, it is It is indeed, but I, I, I could not describe what they did with those property funds as right-wing economics. It was dealing with a crisis situation. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, but, but, you know, clearly that's what will be thrown at Fianna Gael. It's a typical writing party and Fianna Fáil will throw it at him as well. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the reality, of course, is that, you know, there's a whisker difference between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael yeah. in terms of economic I, policy. I think that one of the real issues in people's minds would be who can actually deliver. Yeah. Uh, so it's one thing about spending money, but it's another thing to make sure that the extra money you spend delivers better services, delivers more houses, does things quickly enough. And there's no doubt the government is a bit vulnerable in those areas. A lot of money has been spent on health and, OK, there's been some progress in some areas of the system, but there's still this chronic problem of people getting into the system, whether it be via waiting lists or whether it be via A&E. Likewise, that's the same when Fianna Fáil were It was, absolutely. Well, and, you know, and, that has been an issue as long as I've been alive. Though, yeah, just, as long as you will be alive. And, and maybe voters would just say, you know, nobody can fix the health service. I, well, I don't know. Cliffs, in the first state, the voters aren't really sure what they want because if you go back four years, um, they, they hammered uh, Fine Gael. They lost a whole raft of seats. But yet, uh, Fine Gael still came back with more seats than Fianna Fáil. So they didn't quite trust Fianna Fáil to lead the government, even though they gave them a lot more uh, TDs in the doll. Uh, and then we had uh, all of these, uh, you know, we had uh, Sinn Féin and other parties, uh, Labour got hammered, and we had a whole raft of independents then. So we, we've had this um, mishmash of a minority-led, Fine Gael-led government over the, the past four years, sure. which is entirely unsatisfactory because a lot of legislation doesn't go through. A lot of things can't happen. Um, and the opposition are able to frustrate uh, the government of the day on a lot of important sure. issues. I think we're we're probably heading for more of the same. <laughs> Any realistic expectation of how this election is going to turn out? You know, phase one will be the election itself and seeing which is the bigger party. But phase two is going to be trying to put the Rubik's cube of a, of a new government together, probably involving three, four, or five different bits. Uh, who, you know, whoever takes the lead. Uh, so it could could take quite some time. But you're right, and we're in a society like when I was growing up, a lot of families were Fine Gael voters, a lot of families were Fianna Fáil voters. Uh, people in the trade unions would traditionally support Labour and and, and the, the floating, there was a lot of talk about the floating vote and where it would go and, you know, was it 10% or 15%. Now, now everyone's a floating voter. 
You know, there there is no very little party loyalty anymore. So yes, you you are going to see that. You're going to see you're going to see it swing, and and some of the same forces that have been at play in in you know in the UK and the US are are, are also at play here. That people feel they haven't got their fair share in the long term of mm. economic growth. Uh, a plague on all their houses. They're going to they're going to switch from one party to another. You have the Green Party now. Very interesting to see how they do in, in the election with with the green agenda. Have they got the firepower to get it? So there's a, a lot to play for there, and a lot of unpredictability. But we're, you know, will a Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil probably in the mid fifties after the election, whichever of them does well. Mm-hmm. It's hard to see either of them getting more. Eighty seats are needed for a majority, probably eighty three or eighty four for a comfortable majority. So they're going to be talking to the Greens. They're going to be talking to the Independents. What about Sinn Féin? Are we going to see Sinn Féin in government? It looks unlikely at the moment, but, you know, we've seen before after elections when, you know, people come forward and say the country has spoken and these are the numbers and we have to form a government. I think it's unlikely this time around. Jim, what about Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael going into governments together? We talked about that four years ago. It didn't happen. I, I, I couldn't see it happen, uh, to be honest. Um, I still think we're years away from that. Um, uh, you know, one of the one of the arguments that Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, I suppose, internally would have made against um, an amalgamation would have been that it would, you know, open the door up to Sinn Féin to become the big opposition party. Um, and it would appear over the last couple of years, you know, Sinn Féin has lost its momentum. Uh, this general election will be incredibly interesting in that regard. But if what we saw in the local and European elections, my memory serves me correctly, their vote was down about 40%. You know, it would appear that at this stage, Sinn Féin have peaked out. Mm. So they're no longer, um, I suppose, posing big that big threat. So mm. that that could open the door to mm. conceivably Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, but I cannot see it happening. I think we're years away from that still. So Cliff and mentioned, to be honest, I hope we are. Cliff mentioned the Greens. What about climate change? What role is that going to have in the election? Um Oh, it'll it'll have a huge role. I mean, if you look at the new European Commission, its number one item in its agenda is climate change and the environment. And that will obviously seep down into um, the Irish election. And if you look at what the Greens did um, in the local elections and indeed the European elections back in May, June, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's clearly something that resonates. But you will see Fianna Fáil, you will see Fianna Gael, you will see everybody else trying to take, steal the clothes from the Green Party. And all sorts of promises will be made in the environment. Um, most of the promises will be undeliverable, such as in the area of cars and the electrification of the fleet, for example. Uh, but definitely, um, you know, the party that comes out with credible suggestions and proposals on the environment will definitely attract the young vote. But these proposals generally mean uh, paying more, uh, generally mean more They tax. do, of course. And, uh, and they, Pascal, mean, less, Pascal and they Dunahoo, mean less economic activity. Yeah, Pascal yeah. Donoghue has been very wishy-washy on, on hiking the carbon tax over the last uh, few years. Well, I would say that's confidence and supply. Um, I mean, I, I... OK, Fianna Fáil have been very wishy-washy then on on increasing the carbon tax Yeah, and that's why Fianna Gael didn't. Because, you know, Fianna Fáil, given their constituency, particularly in rural Ireland, would not want to see a hike in carbon taxes. Uh, to me, a hike in carbon taxes was the way forward, provided you put measures in place to protect people from fuel poverty. Um, but, you know, I, I thought what happened in the budget in October in relation to carbon tax was a total cop-out. Um, it showed a total, and, and that's why I'm totally sceptical 
about all of this environmental rubbish we'll have thrown at us, the promises of various politicians. Um, none of them will do what's required to actually sort the problem. And Ireland's a laggard. In terms it's of a total laggard, absolutely. And, you know, if a party came out and credibly promised to seriously tackle the whole climate change issue, would the electors respond positively? Probably not, because the narrative would be it's going to cost us a lot of money. So the Greens might do well, but we're talking probably a handful of seats, Cliff, maybe, as well, opposed to... I wouldn't be an expert in terms of absolute numbers, but you know, will they get 10, 11 seats? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I've, I've, I've looked at a lot of predictions over the last couple of days and you see Sinn Féin 15, 17 seats, which will be a poor... Yeah. result for Sinn Féin and I've seen the Greens being given as many as 15 seats yeah. um, you know yeah. that would be quite extraordinary to see the Greens and Sinn Féin yeah. uh, neck and neck yeah. But outside of Dublin what support is there for the Green Party let's be honest about it Very little mm. Yeah. So what are the Very chances little. of them getting 15 seats? Uh, I, probably unlikely but I would not rule it out um, you know, young people, particularly in the in the local elections, um, I know a lot of young people very close to me who voted Green. Mm. OK, well, local elections and European elections. Uh, well, they are. They are. Absolutely. Minds are very much concentrated yeah. for, for uh, general elections. Cliff, anything else uh, on the horizon that we should be looking at in terms of this election? Uh, I think we've probably covered the main uh, the main issues. I mean, there is going to be a big row as, as well as health. There's going to be a big row about housing and what exactly can be done. And certainly there's a view in Fine Gael that finally supply is starting to come on stream now and it really kills them that if Fianna Fáil get to lead the next government, they may get to take the credit for this. Now, you talk to different people and you get different estimates of how far behind in the supply requirements we actually are. And even the Taoiseach admitted at the weekend that, you know, we still have a way to go. But there's no doubt that supply in the housing market is picking up and we're going to see all kinds of stuff thrown at us, I suspect, over the next couple of weeks in terms of plans to, to build on local authority land, uh, plans for social housing, plans for incentives. There's going to be a whole, uh, a whole mishmash of stuff is going to be thrown at us about, uh, about housing and housing supply. All, I think, with the view of trying to get, from the opposition party's point of view, of trying to get across that this is, you know, this is seen as a weak point for Fine Gael and they're going to try and hammer this one as hard as they can. I think insurance is going to be an issue as well um, because the biz, the small business view out there certainly would be at the moment that this government failed to address the insurance issue and more particularly failed to take on the legal profession. And all sorts of suggestions have been made to me as to why that's the case, which I won't go into here. But I, I definitely think for small business, insurance um, is going to be very high up in the agenda. Yeah, I think, there's, I th- I think you're right at that. Probably from a consumer's point of view as well, and I think there, some of the parties may try and take advantage of a kind of a wider consumer agenda as well, rip-offs and all that. Mm. Interesting to see, for example, does anybody revisit the idea of consumer protection being taken out of the central bank and, and a new institution reform? There's been a lot of, I guess, controversy about the central bank on the one re- representing the banks and also representing the consumer and whether that's a way forward. So interesting to see if anyone. Uh, steps on that pitch over the next couple of weeks I suspect they might I, I kind of feel uh, there was there was a quote from a Latin scholar in 85 BC Publilius Cyrus who said that well I, I remember I, him well I, uh, yeah I'll paraphrase him he basically said that it doesn't take a skillful captain to, nego- to navigate a ship through still waters I think the government is a victim of that at the moment there's a sort of a sense out there that despite all of the economic success 
anybody could have done it. You know, the winds were fair. They were in our favour. Um, and that in the areas where strong political leadership was required, health, education and the insurance issue, I think They've as well. They've made a right hash uh, in housing crisis, haven't they? Uh, well, have they? Um, yes, uh, you know, they as, have. As sure, well as, as how could you argue sorry, otherwise? As, as we have record okay, rents. I did say, I did say earlier, Karen, that it was naive to believe that you could suddenly turn on the tap and bring back all of that supply that was taken out of the system over an eight or nine year period. Okay, um, Cliff has suggested there his belief. I think that you know the housing thing may be actually starting to. 21,000 units uh, last year. Yeah. Depending on who you listen to, anywhere between 35 and 50,000 units required. It was 5,000 units six or seven years ago. I mean, it's we're the problem with delivering housing now is capacity. We actually don't have the physical capacity to deliver 35,000 houses. But people are looking, especially people who want to get onto the property ladder, they're paying astronomical rents Mm. in Dublin historically. Um, and they're all, which makes it very difficult for them to save then the deposit required yeah. to get a mortgage. And then you have the macro prudential rules, which have been enforced by the central bank. And they Sensibly, be, yeah. Well, that that might be the case. But that's also uh, preventing people from being able to uh, get onto the property ladder because prices, you know, the, yeah. the, particularly in Dublin, prices are just a little bit away and they can't afford to save that deposit that they uh, require. Well, I I think sensible people, you know, who are worried about their kids' prospects of ever owning a house or indeed sensible young people who who are worried about never being able to, number one, afford to rent or to buy a house and are still living at home. I mean, they will have to make the call. Do they believe that the government's current strategy is starting to work or not? Um, Fianna Fáil and the opposition will obviously argue that it's not working Fine Gael will obviously arguing that it is starting to work. Um, and, you know, who knows what the real answer to that question is. The evidence would suggest it is actually getting slowly better, uh, but is slowly better enough to satisfy the electorate? I think probably not. So I, I think housing really is an issue that will hammer um, Fine Gael in the election. Health, you know, likewise, I mean, I, I, I look down in my home city of Waterford, where health is a massive issue, where an independent declared yesterday who topped the poll in the local elections. And he's really, a, well, to date, he's a, a one-issue candidate. It's the cat lab, the hospital in Waterford. So, you know, th- those two things will really, really, um, I think, do Fine Gael a lot of damage. Yeah. And, and, and I think they'll make a lot of people forget about the, you know, the apparent sound stewardship of the economy over the last four or five years. All right, let's call it, gentlemen. Uh, Cliff, we'll start with you. Who's going to be the next Taoiseach? Leo or Michal? <laughs> I think most of the experts, most of the political experts seem to oh, be... Oh, forget them, forget yeah, them. Yeah, no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm warming up here now. Give me a chance. I seem to be suggesting that Fianna Fáil are going to be the biggest party after the election. I'm not sure. I think it's going to be very close. I think Fine Gael might, you know, could even edge it again. So I'll... I'll I'll, I'll stick with the Finnegal. Uh, Three in a row for Finnegal. That I'll definitely would be impressive. I'll stick with the. I'll go against the trend for the moment, but I I really think it's going to be ver- it's, it is going to be very tight, uh, and it could be a couple of seats either way between the two big parties at the end. Some of the gains that people are estimating for Fianna Fáil seem a little, little, little over the top to me. But there is no doubt that there are some really good targets for them in the different constituencies. So, 
Ain't they going to gain? Mm. Will they gain? A lot of retiring TDs uh, in this yes, uh, election, it is as in people retiring rather than the moonshot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is a complicated one. So, yeah, you've you've asked me there. So that's that's my Leo. that's my opening. My Leo opening and Pascal. Bid. All right. Yeah, uh, Jim Power. Um, what I think will happen and what I hope will happen are two very different things. Um, you know, if you look at the opinion polls at the moment, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil are neck and neck. And I think typically during election campaigns, Fianna Fáil actually do better than the opinion polls are suggesting. And Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael typically do a little bit worse. So on that basis and um, on the basis of what I can pick up anecdotally about people being sort of a little bit fatigued with the current government um, and in, indeed a retiring Fianna Gael politician said to me the other day that, you know, he was totally disillusioned. He said that Fianna Gael is now all style, no substance. Um, there's that sort of perspective. Who is that, I won't tell you who it is. There's that sort of perspective out there. So on that basis, um, I think Michal Martin will lead the next government. All right. Okay. Well, we shall see. Uh, we, we'll get the, the votes in after February 8th when everybody casts their votes. So uh, Jim Power and Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. Now, the idea of a four-day working week has been gaining traction of late. Now, one man who's brought this idea to his own business is Andrew Barnes, a New Zealand-based entrepreneur whose company is Perpetual Guardian. And Andrew has actually written a book called The Four-Day Week, which is going to launch shortly. Now, I'm delighted to say that Andrew joins me on the line. Andrew, you're very welcome to Inside Business. Thank you for having me. Um, now, you've released uh, a book uh, called The Four-Day Week, and uh, you're talking about a flexible work revolution that can increase productivity, profitability and well-being and a sustainable future. It sounds great, and I know a lot of people uh, who are working five days a week and probably working very long hours across those five days, uh, they would certainly welcome a four-day week. But how's it going to work in practice? Where did the idea come from for this? Well, the genesis of the idea came from reading a couple of articles in The Economist magazine. And they were doing some research on actual productivity in a day. And the survey indicated that the Brits were productive for about two and a half hours a day. And in that particular survey, Canadians for one and a half hours a day. And I thought, why is that happening? And is that happening in my business? And I thought, well, you know, what's happening? You're coming into the office, you have a chat, you have a cup of coffee, uh, you maybe do some social media sit down, start to do some work, somebody disturbs you, breaks your chain of thought, uh, and repeat broadly throughout the day, as well as, you know, dealing with the kids or trying to track down a tradesman. And so the thesis was that if I said to my staff, look, I will gift you a day off, provided you're able to deliver me the same amount of productivity in four days rather than five. And that's really at the heart of the four-day week proposition. Yeah, and that would probably work in some companies. It might even work in media or it might work in law or accountancy or things like that. But it's hard to see how it would work, for example, in the health service, where people are required to be on shifts, on wards, covering uh, a, a number of hours. And of course, we know that health services right across the world are, are really struggling in terms of budgets. Yeah, that's true. But let's have a look at that in the macro sense. So first of all, people are working shifts, right? So they're already not working seven days a week. Mm. Their service is operating seven days a week. They're working for a number of hours. Now, interesting fun fact. The American Health Service kills 240,000 people a year as a consequence largely of misdiagnosis or mistreatment occasioned by stress and overwork. 
In the United Kingdom, you've probably just seen Boris Johnson saying he wants to recruit another 40,000 nurses. Now, a big chunk of those are actually nurses who have left as a consequence of long hours, stress and overwork. So there are two things about this. One is we're losing expensively trained doctors and nurses because the current workload is too long. So, yeah, you will need more doctors and nurses, but you'll probably not lose them at the rate that you're currently losing them. And then a, a little, you know, quick question for you, Kieran. Would you rather be operated on by the doctor who's been working for two hours or the doctor who's been working for 20? Well, Curiously, um, you said that the productivity of uh, Brits was only two and a half hours a day. So that doctor was operating on me was probably only working for two and a half hours a day. <laughs> no, that's in general terms in office context, right? But yeah. but, but the, the real point here is that we're not talking about cost. And this was one of the, the challenges, I think, with the, the Irish Minister of Finance when talked the other day about, look, if we introduced a four-day week, uh, that would cost us 29 billion euros a year. That assumes that productivity drops in line with the amount of time that drops. And the key thing is that that's not the case. What we're finding in most companies that introduce the four-day week, the productivity actually increases. And that's the key point, that actually you get better output at the same time as giving people more downtime. And more downtime you know, means that you're addressing issues like, you know, stress, overwork, sickness, those sort of issues that are, are really pandemics in modern society. Sure, but I, I, I come back to my original point about, um, let's say, the nurses on, on the ward. You need an eight-hour shift or a 12-hour shift or whatever it might be. No, you currently need an eight-hour shift. You could argue they could have a six-hour shift. You would need more nurses. I'm not arguing that. Yeah. What I'm saying is that the quality of the healthcare output would be better. Now, I would suggest Ireland is the same as my home country, New Zealand. We are now spending billions of dollars a year to address the pandemic in stress and mental health that's existing in one in four or one in five of the current workforce. Now, those people are being treated, guess where? in the hospital system, in the healthcare system. So on the one hand, we're overworking our workforce to death. That's causing health issues. They're going into the health system. The health system is therefore picking up the costs of addressing that. And then in turn, we're stressing our healthcare system. So we've got a whole pile of people pouring out the door on that. So if you actually addressed this issue in the macro, Yes, you would have more doctors. Yes, you would have more, more nurses. But at the same time, you've probably got not as many as you think you might need because you're not going to be filling the hopper with patients from the other end to the same extent. And people are going to have time to do things like, I don't know, care for their elderly uh, relations, which basically also mean that they're not being impacted in the healthcare. Find the number of hospital beds in the UK, for example, having to be looked after by highly trained nurses that are really just looking after old people. Yeah, sure. So you have to go, this is where it does get really complicated, but you've got to go to the macro when you look at things like healthcare. Andrew, is there a body of evidence to support your theory on this? Yeah, there is. Look, well, it starts from the base points that uh, 
of the companies that have adopted our version of the four-day week, uh, they have seen productivity improvements in the order of 20 to 40 percent. The most recent was Microsoft in Japan, which increased its productivity by 39.9 percent. So working smarter, working less hours in the week is delivering better productivity. That is broadly a given. It, the earliest piece of research on this that I found dates back bizarrely to 1917. So there is a lot of evidence on that score. There is an awful lot of evidence around things like the impact of our current work regime creating stress, overwork, mental uh, sickness. That means that one in four, one in five of our workforce are suffering from stress or mental health issues at any point in time. They are clearly not productive already. So there is those issues. And then you move on from those into issues around climate and and the wider issues of health. Okay, so put a framework around it for people um, so as they can understand how this would work. Um, let's just say, you know, on average, people are working 40 hours a week uh, across five sure. days. If we move to four days, is, is that a, are we moving to a ten hour day, or is it no. simply a thirty two? Does it become a thirty two hour week? It becomes it work? becomes thirty it becomes thirty two hours. So so to be clear, my company is a uh, legal services, financial services business. Mm. It operates retail stores. Okay, so the first thing is we're operating shop hours. We have to keep those branches open. So. You know, it, we, we cover a, a quite a range in our own company. What we do, quite simply, is we operate what we call a 100-80-100 rule. 100% pay, 80% of the time, provided we get 100% productivity. So this equally applies to whether you're on a full-time contract or whether you're on a part-time contract. The same formula is applied to your time. Now, all we do then is each team agrees amongst themselves who takes which day off each week. So it's not always a Friday. It's not always a Monday. We don't close the doors. We don't shut the business down. And the the real deal here is all you are needing to do is to change how you work in each working day. If those British surveys are right and they've been backed up by other surveys uh, around the world, Theoretically, you have to find about 45 minutes of additional productivity in each of the four days. And so that might be not attending a meeting. It might be putting a little flag in a pot that says, actually, for an hour, please don't disturb me. There are all sorts of little tricks, but none of this is is rocket science. You know, we found that when we introduced the four-day week, internet surfing in our business dropped 35% because people decided a day off was more important than Facebook. It's about lots of people doing very small things. We're often busy without being productive. Now, the four-day week was one of many items floated by the Labour Party in the run-up to the uh, UK general election. And as we know, they got hammered at the polls and the Conservatives won a huge majority. So the British public uh, didn't seem to really warm to this idea. Oh, I think they warmed to it, but it, the problem was that when he started off down the path of talking about it, Jeremy Corbyn uh, just talked about a legislative four-day week, and the instant reaction is not different from yours. But, you know, actually, this doesn't make sense, you know. He didn't link it to productivity. I am a businessman. I am not 
Uh, I'm not somebody who's approaching this from the basis initially, at least, of work-life balance. What I'm actually saying is that my company is more productive, more profitable, because I have introduced a four-day week. I mean, it's not rocket science. If you have an engaged, empowered, enthusiastic, rested workforce, I'm going out on a limb here, you're going to get better productivity from them. So this is a simple business decision. Mm. But if you phrase it in the language of, we're going to legislate a four-day week, um, those of us who are as old as I am remember the three-day week of the 1970s. You know, we equate that to being not about Mm. continuing to work productively and profitably, but about cutting wages, about people's salaries going down. I'm not arguing that either. So it's how you discuss this and how you talk about it that's critical. Yeah. Now, the Finnish Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, um, she seemed to be suggesting, uh, I think it was around August of last year, um, that a four-day week might be on the agenda over there, but um, has since, uh, or the Finnish government at least, have since stepped back from that, saying that it's not on the agenda. And Finland is probably one of those countries um, that you might expect to lead on something like this. Yeah, that, look, I think that's true. I mean, we actually say that you can't legislate for this. Mm. Uh, bizarrely, actually, they're not the leader. The Russians are already legislating for it, um, partly as a consequence uh, uh, bizarrely, of reading about the work that we were doing in New Zealand. But what this is really about is a journey that you go. You've got to make a four-day week a norm eventually, and that's going to take some time. And certainly our argument is that this is something that companies, organisations should introduce, and it's a journey which over time society will redefine the norm of working hours away from the current 40. Now, if you look at countries like Holland, you look at countries like Germany, they're further down the path on this than we are. In fact, I think the norm of the working week in Holland is around 28 hours. So they've got there without legislation. They, You need to use legislation to make it easy for companies to adopt this. And, and bizarrely, that it isn't easy because most employment legislation is linked to normal hours of work. But if you change, that's the framework and changes that you need to do. But but it's a journey. It's certainly one that shouldn't be, I think, legislated overnight. And what about technology? What about the, the role, let's say, of robots or machines in the future? Is that going to play a part in this move to a four-day week? Well, inevitably it will. But the other side of that equation is if you believe the the in the doomsday reports that about 40% of our current jobs are going to disappear as a consequence of AI and technology. How do we retrain our workforce so that it can adapt to that environment? Well, one of the ways we could do it is by introducing four-day weeks. People then have a day a week that they can retrain, reinvest time and money in themselves to prepare them for that new environment. Otherwise, it's very difficult to know how you prepare a workforce for the the impact of AI, because when do they have time to upskill? All right, Andrew, how many days a week are you working? About eight, mainly because I'm talking about the four-day week so much. <laughs> <laughs> but I know, I don't work in a business anymore. What I have done is I, I did make those changes. For example, I, I do not do business 
emails and things on weekends anymore, which as a business owner, I always used to do. And, you know, I'm quite rigid now about when I work and when I don't work. And when I stop being a little bit evangelical about the four-day week, I'll actually look to take one myself. Right. Okay. Well, listen, uh, we wish you well in this uh, campaign. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who hope you will succeed and that you will persuade uh, a lot of companies and uh, indeed some governments uh, to go down this path. Uh, Andrew Barnes, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks again to Jim Power, Cliff Taylor and Andrew Barnes for their contributions. Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 